Hello ladies and gentlemen, it's Connor from The Progressive American. In this bonus episode, you will get to hear my interview with Dr. Benjamin Dar, an associate professor of politics at Loris College. In the future, all interviews will be bonus episodes of the podcast, which you can watch on Spotify or Apple Podcast. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to doing more of these for your entertainment. So, ladies and gentlemen, I have with me Dr. Benjamin Dar, an associate professor of politics here at Loris College. He is heavily involved with the progressive movement here in Dubuque, and he has agreed to join me as a guest on my podcast. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks, Connor. So uh, one of the things that has now become a bit of an issue for progressives and Democrats as well, those things are not mutually connected, um, is what is where we go from here now that Trump's out of office. He kind of provided a sort of fuel to the fire uh, sort of thing for a lot of progressives and uh, people just in general across this country. So I guess my question for you is, where do you see the Demo- the progressives going And how do you think progressives can really enact their policies, both inside the Democratic Party and outside of them, in an effective manner for the years to come? Yeah, well, let me let me just open up by saying that I'm going to speak from my own views here and I'm not going to represent Loris College in any way. So that should go without saying. I just like to disclaim that out front. So where does the progressive movement go? Um, Yeah, it's it's a. it's kind of 40 days in the wilderness time um, for like all the people that worked hard on the Bernie campaigns. Um, there's not like a clear electoral successor. Um, maybe that's a good thing right now. Maybe um, maybe we need to work in our communities and, and to um, work harder for um, policy pushes that, that can be gained in local in localities, municipalities at the state level. I think the progressive movement often gets, um, it gets mobilized by presidential campaigns and that's a good thing, but that often just kind of, where, where do we go from here? I mean, that, um, that's, that's been the case, I think after, after Bernie, after 2016, everyone was, uh, what, you know, is Bernie going to run in 2020? That was a big question. Okay. He is, we've got four more years of, of that. Um, but I think the left has really lost its strength, not not from, well, in a lot of areas, but the key area is at the grassroots level and the loss of unionization and collective labor rights being stripped all across the country, mostly at the state level, right? Not at the national level. Um, <clears throat> and uh, here in Iowa, I mean, that's not just union related either, but I mean, for instance, in Iowa, they've they've taken away the the powers of of municipalities and cities to actually set higher standards for like uh, minimum wage for um, other job related benefits like sick leave, paid sick leave, maternity leave. Um, there, I mean, I don't, there may be other states that have done similar things, but that's an example of how we've been blocked um, at all sorts of levels. So yeah, the, <clears throat> the progressive movement is maybe without a clear leader or a clear electoral agenda. Who, who are we supposed to elect now? Mm. Um, but maybe that allows us to focus better on policy. So you, know, you would, you would local, say, at, oh, sorry, go ahead. At, at all sorts of levels. I think that we've ignored the local level. 
So I so if I understand you correctly, you would say that the issue is without someone like say Bernie as the electoral candidate, it can sometimes be harder to unify uh, around a common goal. But at the same time, that can sometimes help uh, focus on specific policies in local and state politics. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, now is always a good time to try to organize your community, to try to organize uh, workers um, into unions. Uh, I think those those are a key linchpin of of um, a real leftist movement, and those unify people across um, across racial lines, um, across other kind of dividing lines. The left has a real tendency to divide, as we know, <laughs> and everybody's got that solution to that, I suppose. Um, while they also call out other people. So, yeah, but, but I think um, the, the existing models that have worked in the past to get real reforms, you look at the New Deal and how all that was passed, and sure that had its flaws, but that was a huge victory for the working class and for every day, for, for the people of the United States and for the left. Because um, a victory for the people is a victory for the left in my view. And how did that come about? That, was, that came about through... Um, a president who was not, who did not really run on this kind of thing. And Frank, Franklin Roosevelt was no Bernie Sanders in the way he campaigned in his initial run, but um, he, he was pressured and he was responsive to pressure. So um, I'm not saying that Biden will turn out to be uh, anything like Franklin Roosevelt in terms of policies, but the difference was we had a mobilized left. We had an active um very strong uh, trade union with a with a, with a history of, of striking and actually not being afraid to use their power. Um, we had a strong set of leftist parties, particularly the Communist Party in the USA. Right, so there was this there was this. We we had our elected officials kind of afraid of us in the sense that there may be a revolution or or we better better appease the population with like some social democratic reforms like yeah. social security, uh, unemployment insurance, all the New Deal stuff. Um, that was a product of the pressure that was pl placed on elected officials, not the product of an electoral campaign that put all our hope in a messianic figure that said, we're going to we're going to elect this person and then we're going to get all these all these gains. Roosevelt didn't run on that stuff. We pressured him to do it. So. Yeah. And that's that's another thing that I wanted to talk about. Like, it seems to me a lot of left wing politics and I don't just mean leftist. I mean, left of center, slightly even someone who like leans a little bit to the Democratic Party, seems to focus on presidential elections. And then when presidential pers election is over, they just peter out and don't focus on like keeping people in power. Like for me, I would say one of the things that is important is not just obviously mobilizing on the local and state level. And I said that on one of the interviews I was on, but also making sure that those state and local uh boards that, and organizations that you already do control don't get attacked by national policies. So keeping control of the Senate would be an example. Um, I was rather amazed to see uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff win. Uh, so, and one of the ways I would, and I don't know if you agree with this necessarily, but one of the ways I think that it was successful was we were successful there is because we had someone like Stacey Abrams mobilizing communities that are specifically aligned with with left-wing politics rather than trying to appease Republican aesthetics. And I'm curious your thoughts on that kind of thing too. Well, I can't claim any particular expertise in the Georgia elections, but speaking, speaking to the election uh, more generally, um, 
what's really striking is that uh, the Democrats lost seats in the House, mm -hmm. right? Picked up seats in the Senate. I think um, maybe maybe developments I and mean, what happened in Georgia was surprising to a lot of people. Um, maybe national developments and then Trump's activities prior to that um, soured things for the Republicans. Um, but what was really striking was how, how the Democrats should have won. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's a giant economic crisis on top of that. Um, and you've got the, you know, the, the major media is all rightly quite critical of, of Trump to the extent that we've never seen for, a, the, the, we've never seen that relationship between a media and the president before. Despite all that, the, the, the Democrats managed to lose seats in the House. Um, in Iowa, uh, they, they, they expanded their majorities, I think, in both state houses. Um, the, not the Democrats, the Republicans, right? Um, so it should have been a much bigger victory. And when we look at uh, some of those seats that were lost, um, my understanding is that what, what I've heard is that all the um, candidates who ran in the House, for instance, on, on Medicare for All actually retained their seat or picked up seats. They won their races, uh, and there was a stark contrast in a lot of the, a lot of the candidates who ran the milk toast appeals. Georgia is an exception here because you've got Ossoff, um, who's clearly a, a pretty, I think, corporate neoliberal Democrat, um, not a progressive. So uh, that's the exception because the, the wider pattern was um, Medicare for all, which of course has 70, like three quarters of the population supports it in the middle of the pandemic. Um, those candidates tended to win. This is really striking because so many, so many of the centrists have blamed the election <clears throat> and the poor performance of the Democrats on progressives, right? The point of the things like defund the police or, or various other kind of left-wing slogans. Um, but really when you look at the breakdown on, on an issue like Medicare for all, which I think more voters care about, especially now in the middle of the COVID-19 stuff, um, a very different pattern emerges in those, those blame, that blame game appears to reverse course and it's, it's the centrists. Mm -hmm. who are thinking, so I'm not sure that answers your question all that well, but that, that comes to mind. Well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, cause there's always going to be little nuances in the questions. Um, but my thing for the, like, you know, protecting, let's say, let's say just in an ideal circumstance, uh, progressives do take control of Iowa. Now, in order for Iowa's politics and uh, to be, remain progressive, you'd have to see them as con uh, consistent with the United States Constitution. And one of the concerns, in my opinion, would be more conservative judges in the future if the Republicans take control of the Senate. So, as like Asa, if you point to him not necessarily being a progressive, but being a sort of neoliberal figure. But he's also not going to appoint somebody to the court who would, you know, strike down every union thing under the sun. Now, obviously, I'm more progressive in my politics and you are as well. So pushing anybody a little further to the left is a benefit. So I guess my my from my position, it would be, yes, I, he's not going to do everything that I like. But it's also about preventing more Federalist Society judges from crippling an already weakened progressive infrastructure. Right, right. Well, I, I would push back on that a little bit. I think that's generally, yeah, you get better judicial candidates out of, out of Democrats. But also you've, I mean, this is a, a longstanding pattern, and especially with regards to unions and labor issues, um, 
right to work issues. Um, the votes haven't always been in the Supreme Court based on what party appointed them. Um, there have been some surprises. Yep. Uh, was it um, John Paul Stevens that was actually appointed by Reagan and ended up being one of the left left members of the court? But um, similarly, I think a lot of um, Democratic appointees have had sure they've had very different on, on some issues. The difference is quite stark. So like abortion rulings, anything related to Roe v. Wade, there's a big difference. And I'm not trying to dim, dimin, um, not trying to diminish that, but um, on issues that I think affect more people more consistently in everyday life, um, issues related to labor and wages and em employer-employee relations. Um, you've, you've had a, a steady trend, I think, to the right from from ju judicial appointees of both parties. Mm. Um, so yeah, Republicans have moved to the right, and especially if you add in social issues, uh, cultural issues. But um, my general sense of, of judicial appointees and, and judge judicial rulings over the last, say, 40 years, since I guess neoliberalism has really taken hold, um, is that, that that's been a broader shift and the Democratic appointees are often not that much better, at least on those issues. Mm. So it's a, it's a difficult uh, decision on your end because it's, it's not just that they may prevent them from destroying unions, but they might not do enough to protect them or that they might do it just more gradually and more sneakily. Yeah, yeah, and the, they're in mundane kind of cases um, that always that aren't always five four. I mean, a lot of, I think more recently the the cases t tend to split more often. I think the polit political scientists who study the Supreme Court say that this it's kind of polarizing, but um, you still have quite a few seven three, not eight one. You know, unanimous decisions even um, relating to to business and um, some some issues like. Uh, forced arbitration agreements among um, so like the, every time you sign up for a new like social media account you're you're automatically agreeing that you can't take them to court as part of a class action lawsuit you have to go through their arbitration which they get to pick the arbiters you're signing away your legal rights to uh, sue them basically um, and that happens um, all all over now and but it's especially prominent with tech companies and of course democratic uh, lawmakers, the Democratic Party, I mean, one of the major sources of power in the Democratic Party, and Pelosi represents this, along with some other um, major California Democrats, is Silicon Valley and the tech companies and the monopolies they represent. So I think we have to be very careful about... This brings to mind other issues related to censorship and, um, and the public square and how that's completely privatized now at the hands of monopolies like Google and Facebook. Yep. But um, I think we have to be careful about overlooking issues, you know, we, we, we came at this from Supreme Court cases, but the broader point is Silicon Valley also has its interests and its its uh, interests get expressed through the Democratic Party quite strongly, more, I think, than the interests of the general public. And those interests involve, you know, things that hurt regular people and, and arbitration agreements is one, one way that works. Um, something like Uber and the pressure on California to pass Proposition, what was it, 201? I can't remember, but this was the proposition that basically said that... Um, Uber employees don't have to be called employees. They're, they're independent contractors. And this is going to expand that whole business model. And that, that is harmful to working people because that puts downward pressure on wages and it accelerates this, this uh, gig economy trend we've seen of making people's jobs less secure, more um, temporary, 
um, or, or like remove makes the the disposable income decrease because the their um, expenses and health and whatnot are not as easily protected because they can't get health insurance. Right, right. And it makes it difficult or even impossible for them to organize into unions and to represent their own interests that way. Yeah. So we and can't afford to ignore how, how power centers in the Democratic Party have the opposite interests of, of I think, working people. And with that in mind, I, I do wonder, do you believe that it is possible to work within the Democratic Party to start pushing for more progressive candidates um, to eventually, you know, hopefully take over? Or do you see that as more of a long term game? Or not a game at all. <laughs> yeah, my, I don't know. I've, I've had a, this has been a tough question for me over the past few years. But lately, I think I'm, I'm moving in the direction of there has to be, if there's going to be work done inside the Democratic Party, and I think there's lots of good people trying to move the Democratic Party left. Um, but I think if that's going to work, there also needs to be a threat from outside. There needs to be, uh, we have to have the ability to, um, to say no sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, well, that's the wrong tack here. But what, what I mean is the Democratic Party will not respond if it knows that all of the progressives, all the Bernie voters are just going to vote for whatever whatever corporate candidate they put in front of us, right? That, that, um, that there needs to be some kind of, in political science, we call it exit. There needs to be some threat of exit uh, or you're not going to be listened to, right? One of the metaphors I've heard as it relates to like uh, the black community is that they um, they're just in the trunk of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party keeps them in the trunk, pulls them out on on uh, hard occasions to make sure they, they win. Um, but they, they can always count on them. They've always got them in the trunk. Right. Because they, how could they possibly go elsewhere? And I think that's a real defect of a two party system. And we need to um, we need to think about how we can credibly threaten to say, look, Democrats, um, Democrats aren't always worth the vote. And unless you put someone in front of us that's worthwhile, we will not, you will not just be able to count on our vote. That might change the calculus of the Democratic Party. So I, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be people doing work within the Democratic Party and we shouldn't try to push that party further left. But I don't know, recent experiences show that that's, um, that's uh, a <laughs> lot more difficult than I thought. And in a lot of cases, I think the Democratic Party would rather hang on to their existing sources of funding, existing um, powerful groups that they, they're in league with. I mentioned Silicon Valley. There's also Wall Street, um, the insurance lobbies, um, and, you know, pharma, you name it, right? Um, all, these, all these major industries, oil. Democratic Party, big oil. Oil is, yeah. Oil is one that's that's more Republican leaning, but <laughs> uh, but still, yeah. So um, I guess I'm com I'm repeating myself now, coming circling back to the point I originally made. But um, that's a party that we have to be realistic about, and, and that is now basically, when you look at the actions of it, I think more systematically, it's acting in the interests of groups that usually have have. Um, conflicting interests with regular working people and the, the whole path of neoliberalism, right? The, if you look at the history of democratic versus Republican administrations, even when Democrats had full control in, in Barack Obama term, what we got was Obamacare. And now many people say Obamacare was sort of a, a partial victory. And there's certainly great things about it. Probably your generation has a lot more health coverage than they would otherwise, just thanks to the, the, the 
26 year old rule. Right? Yeah, that was that's the big one. Um, but at the same time, you look at Obamacare, and it was a it was a huge handout to insurance industry to the insurance industry. They they had to give up a few things, but what they got in return was a mandate for everyone to buy their their product. And um, that's I think when you talk about neoliberalism, I think that's a, just a perfect example of neoliberalism. Like the market is so good that we're going to force you to jump onto it, and we're going to penalize you if you don't buy a particular product and, and go onto this market. Um, and we didn't get the public option we were promised. We can talk about Bill Clinton before Obama, right? Um, and how he, I mean, there's a whole litany of things that Clinton put through that I don't think a Republican would have been able to put through, but they did. He, he um, balanced the budget, which isn't as good as it sounds if you're progressive. Um, <laughs> but uh, he deregulated communications so that we're, we have this world of tech monopolies that run our communication system right now. Um, he put through the, uh, the crime bill, uh, along with Joe Biden, of course, uh, which ended up in us being an even more carceral state. Um, yeah, he signed into law NAFTA. That was something that George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush before him was trying to do. Um, and uh, there was a lot of pushback from unions and from the traditional Democratic base because it was a Republican trying to do this thing, which would which would uh, curtail the power of, of labor in this country and lower wages. Well, Bill Clinton was able to get that done um, because I think the left looks less critically on a Democratic president than a, than a, than a Republican president. And, um, um, we see that happening more dramatically than ever right now as we transition from Trump to Biden. Yeah. And um, on, on that note, I, th I guess I'll try and get to the, uh, the big controversy as of late within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is the force the vote issue. Um, I understand you wrote an article about it, but I'm curious about your view on some of the critics of the force the vote approach. Like, for example, some people have said, like, if it doesn't pass, if, let's say we have this vote and this vote, these, some of these Congress people who genuinely don't want it, don't want Medicare for all, they come, they know it's not going to pass. So they vote with it to protect themselves from a primary. What would be the strategy to prevent such a thing or to observe it, to be able to tell this is a person we need to primary as well? Yeah, that, that's, that's a very distinct possibility. Um, I think that still sounds a lot better than not having a vote. I want to make that clear. Um, you know, having, having a vote is good. I mean, lots of the, lots of the progressive victories we've had, were voted on and failed so many times, right? Um, it's you only needed to win once, and once, um, well, in our system, you needed to go through the Senate and the House and get signed by the president. But um, I don't think. I mean, what what's the harm in a failed vote? Um, for one, but the concern you're expressing is more nuanced. That okay, the arguments put forward that we need this even if it fails, so we know who to go after. Um, but I think even somebody willing to vote for it, even if they don't think it's going to pass, that, that says something. Um, and that might, that, that's, that's still, um, you know, their donors, that, that is willing to go against, uh, I think, if they're getting money from the insurance industry or pharma. Um, that still shows uh, something important that, you know, votes, votes are still votes. Um, and if enough, enough Democrats were willing to do that, then it does get close to being able to pass. And um, I don't know, it, it might have even might have even passed, I think, unforced the vote. I mean, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this. There's a lot of pieces to this. There um, always is. 
So I think force the vote was just the right idea. And um, I think, again, going back to that idea, we need, we need to be able to threaten to say no. And, and progressives in the House had more power than they'd ever had when, because the Democratic majority shrunk and they needed, you know, it was, the vote was gonna come down to something like less than 10 votes um, to, get, to get the majority that was needed. Um, so are they willing to use that power? Are they willing to actually push for the kinds of things they, they want? Or I think what got in the way, because none of the progressives did this, what got in the way in large part was careerism and um, wanting to have the right kind of committee seats, right? Uh, it seems like AOC in particular, she got this when she was running uh, originally as this insurgent candidate to unseat Crowley. Um, she got that, that she even talked about like, we need people who are willing to serve one term if it means they're going to fight for the people, right? If it means you're, you're going to get your funding cut from the DCCC, if you're going to get on the bad side of Nancy Pelosi, so be it. That's what we need because Pelosi is not our friend, right? She's Silicon Valley's friend, Wall Street's friend. Um, well, she's in there two years and now she's very much, much more concerned with, oh, I need, I need to keep this committee seat. I need to even going so far as to call Pelosi mama bear. Um, so you see, I, I don't know, it's, it's been kind of astonishing that virtually none of the quote unquote squad um, signed on to this uh, idea and th that the idea had to kind of come from um, just a prominent YouTuber, right? And it wasn't one that was cooked up in, in a meeting of in, in some kind of house progressive meeting or the squad if they, if they get together and meet. Um, that was very striking. See where I where I see a distinction between that is back. It's kind of tied to your infrastructure thing. How we mentioned in the past that there wasn't a strong democratic infrastructure, not just on like the local level, but on the national level, to really build progressive politics. And having a progressive on a committee, say ex examining whatever policies come forward, can determine can actually fight back against that neoliberalism that you were talking about. So from my perspective, at least, yes, not having someone like sign on the force the vote thing is possibly a little off, off, but I would also say that sometimes the best thing for the progressives is to build a long-term gain, not just to get Medicare for all, but to get a $15 minimum wage, greater protection. Yeah. And when the opportunity presents itself, putting forward more progressives, um, in, in into the house that's the thing that concerns me if we don't have a long-term game we can't protect even the slightest thing that we gain in, in here and now like someone could repeal let's say it does pass today it could someone could repeal the medicare for all bill if we lose some of our best people i okay yeah i think two things here um Absolutely, the long-term game is the game we're playing. I don't think there's a disagreement about that. I think I think long-term we need to have this issue come to prominence. We need we need it. I mean, we've done the organizing of the people. Like we've got 75% of the population or 70-some percent of the population, depending on the poll, supporting Medicare for all. The the pandemic right now, like I don't know if we're going to have as high a support for that in the future post-pandemic. Um, even almost half of Republicans support this idea. Right. At least among actual people, not not we're not talking about legislators who are dependent on money from insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. Um, 
I lost my train of thought. But uh, so one thing is the long term versus short term. Uh, I think yes to both of those things. I think short term and long term, the best move was to get this on the agenda and to force Nancy Pelosi. Now, now if Nancy Pelosi wasn't going to do it, if and AOC indicated that, and credit to AOC for actually dealing with the issue. None of the other members of the squad really even chimed in on it, uh, at least directly. So AOC at least um, addressed this issue and and discussed it with with people on Twitter. Um, but if she really thinks that Nancy Pelosi is going to sacrifice her speakership or, or risk losing her speakership just so that Medicare for all does not have a vote. Why are you supporting Nancy Pelosi? That's, that's my question, right? Mm. Um, she has a D next to her name, right? She, she's, she's got, the, she's, she's blue. Um, that's, that's really the only reason. And I don't think that's a legit reason uh, if you're really in this game for real policy advances. And uh, I think Medicare for all needs to get more publicity um, because the more it's presented to people, the more it, the, the more traction it gets, and that's that's been the effort of, of groups like DSA, who've been sort of spreading the word and organizing regular people about um, about Medicare for all. When it comes to actually put pressure on on your uh, elected officials, especially those elected officials you have sympathy for and a connection with, and you want to hold them up and not not criticize them. I mean, that's an impulse we have to resist. To um, I mean, we, we make fun of Republicans all the time for being hypocritical about how they support their politicians when they do the same things that Democrats do, but then they oppose the Democrats for those reasons, right? We see the same thing with, with Democrats, and we see the same thing among progressives on the left, too. Um, when AOC doesn't want to put the pressure she, she says she wants to put on, on House leadership, she doesn't want to be combative, um, we need to, yeah, we need to be just as critical of her as we are of of your John Ossoffs and corporate Democrats and, and Republicans. I think um, if they're if they're not if they're not actually moving the ball forward, um, and there's a debate here about you know she's moving the ball forward, but I I don't think like let's not do this was 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 the right answer. Um, and I think her tactical acumen is also influenced by all these committee, these committee chairmanships I can get. She had her committee seat taken away from her, interestingly. Um, she, she, she didn't have it taken away from her. She was gunning for a seat on the Ways and Means Committee, which was basically the most powerful committee in the House. Um, and she got that taken. Uh, she didn't get it. And who got that seat instead was a, a blue dog Democrat who had who had, I think, threatened to vote against Pelosi the last time or, or did not vote for Pelosi the last time as speaker said. So there you go. I mean, that's that's power. Right? When you can threaten to not support when, when you're not a, just a guaranteed um, count on us, we're going to support you no matter what. If you actually can threaten to withdraw your vote, then you can actually get the influence. So I think the, even the committee seat stuff like that's there's a strong case to be made that she could have. Uh, maybe got that committee seat if she was willing to exercise the leverage instead of just say we're supportive no matter what. See, and and I'll just throw my last two thoughts in here before I end the interview. But um, one of the things that I think, at least if this forced the vote thing were to be more well organized, which would have been like presenting an alternative candidate earlier on, like months in advance, having a plan for that. I think that would have, that, that would have, I think, made AOC and others more partial to the idea that it would have been more effective because if you throw all your weight behind just withholding your vote and not some alternative that like may actually win 
you kind of give this idea that you're alienating a portion of the party that may be with you on other issues that are also in progressives' interests, such as the minimum wage, but they won't be on your side if you, you know, in their eyes, waste their time. So that's that's a consideration. Um, just my final thoughts on it. Um, but I'd like to thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate this very much. Uh, this is Dr. Dar. Uh, he's Associate Professor of Politics here at Loris College. Thank you all for joining me and have a nice day. Thanks, Connor. No problem. Thank you.